Hey everyone, welcome back to the Outer Banks Health History, the official podcast series of the Outer Banks Hospital and Medical Group. This month marks 20 years since the hospital opened, and we have been celebrating with weekly episodes that feature special guests speaking about life before the Outer Banks Hospital, as well as its early years. Today, we will be looking forward. We are your host, Denise Schnabel. And I'm Wendy Kelly. Today's guest leads a healthcare team of over 500 dedicated individuals. He previously served as the administrator in charge of the Swain County Critical Access Hospital and Swain Medical Center, and was also the Vice President of Support Services for the MedWest Health System in Clyde, North Carolina. The Outer Banks Hospital was fortunate the day this Star Wars fan took command of the bridge on June 13, 2011. He's the president of the Outer Banks Hospital and Medical Group and a real-life stormtrooper. Join us in welcoming Ronnie Sloan. Ronnie Sloan. Thank you. Thank Hi you for Ronnie. being Thank here, you. Ronnie. You're most welcome. So in the movies, Ronnie, stormtroopers are evil, but we all know that you are not. So before we get to the meat of the podcast, tell us about your stormtrooper side hustle. Oh, my side hustle. <laughs> Well, yeah, I work with a group of dedicated volunteers, nerds and geeks of both <laughs> female and male persuasion who uh, build costumes, exactly replicas of Star Wars costumes in the movies. And we do a lot of work with children, especially. Make-A-Wish Foundation is our national partner. And uh, we just love to get out and have fun with the kids and uh, raise money and have awareness for Make-A-Wish Foundation. That's great. And you have two live stormtroopers in your office. I do. Okay, great. They're, they're models. Models. They are. Yep. Nice. So prior to that, or maybe not, because Star Wars came out quite a few years ago, but when did you decide to go into healthcare? When did I decide to go into healthcare? So I was in college as a young 18-year-old in mechanical engineering. Mm. You know, I don't want to offend any mechanical engineers out there, <laughs> but I realized I'd be sitting in an office and uh, doing a lot of work. This is before computers. I'm dating myself a little bit. Before computers came along, so a lot of drawing by hand, and I'd taken a couple of years of drafting in high school at a vocational school, so I, I liked the drawing part, but realized pretty quickly it was all about metallurgy and tensile strength of steel and all this type of stuff, and I happened to be dating a nurse at the time <laughs> who was in nursing, and I would see her come on the weekends, and we'd get together, and she would talk about her day during the week, and delivering a baby, saving a life, doing CPR, holding someone's hand when their family member was passing away, just her compassion and the way she felt, the way it made her feel and the fulfillment she got out of that career was just amazing to me. So I started thinking about healthcare in general because that seemed a lot more fulfilling to me than sitting behind a desk drawing all the time, basically. Mm-hmm. And fortunately enough, I met a counselor in college who was very smart and uh, talked to me about different healthcare careers and introduced me into respiratory therapy. And I remember distinctly, he said, well, what about respiratory therapy? And I said, respiratory what? God, never heard of it. This was, I'm dating myself again, 40 years ago. My high school 43 union is coming up this year. So then he introduced me to Wanda Perry, who was the director of the respiratory therapy program in Greenville, South Carolina. And all those cliches, she could sell you oceanfront property in the middle of the (laughs) desert about how great respiratory therapy was as a field. And it was still very young, about 19 years young when I got into it. And then I started working in the clinic. I started treating patients and touching patients and, you know, going into a room 
with a really sick kid. I love the pediatrics, as you mm-hmm. can tell. That's mm-hmm. what's doing a little Star Wars stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, matter of fact, all the therapists loved it when I was on the schedule because they knew I'd take care of the kids, no matter how sick they were, no matter what situation they were in. But you'd go in, and for the 20, 30 minutes you're treating the kids, you know, the parents, their shoulders would just kind of relax, mm-hmm. and they'd take it easy, and they kind of realize that somebody else had their kid for a moment, and they could relax and take a break. And it got a lot of fulfillment out of that very quickly. And excelled as a student that my mother, bless her heart, asked me the question, are you cheating on your exam, son? You know, you, <laughs> wow. Yeah, Mom, you, what? Yeah, you didn't have these kind of grades <laughs> in, in high school. You know, I could say maybe you should cut this later, but whatever. You know, I'm, I'm proof that a solid C in high school can become press of a hospital. <laughs> Yay. So, you know, if you like what, what you do. Yeah. Right. So I got into college, got into respiratory therapy, found my passion, found something I really loved and really wanted to put my effort towards. And ended up being a, you know, honor student, all those type of things that go with it. And again, mom accusing me of cheating. But I, I never brought those kind of grades home in high school. So that's what I encourage, right? Every time I talk to kids, I mean, just do what you're passionate. Do what you like. Don't worry about the money. Don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about the status because it all comes with happiness. You know, strive for something that really just fulfills you, period. And that's what it's all about, I think. But That's a great story. Yeah. And right. I'm, I'm glad you weren't cheating. Yeah, right. (laughs) So these past two years have been crazy with the COVID pandemic. So with your background in respiratory therapy, as well as being the leader of the organization, you have a unique perspective. What's it been like for you? Yeah, you know, respiratory therapy definitely still unknown field to some extent. I mean, I think one thing is highlighted respiratory therapy and the importance of respiratory therapists in healthcare in general. And I think that's great for our profession. But innovation has been huge over the last several years from some telehealth to ways that we keep the environment, you know, clean and um, sterile to the way we treat patients from testing perspective to COVID infusions. I mean, the movement the country has made in just a couple of years through innovation and through people working together across all spectrums has been amazing. The the hope is that we harness all that, right, Mm -hmm. and go forward with it and things even better, even quicker, which is what our country is going to need, obviously. Right. Ronnie, last uh, week, our podcast guest was Beulah Ashby, a former board member, and she spoke about remembering interviewing you, and that one of the things that you said during your interview 11 years ago was, I want to grow this hospital. Do you remember that? Yeah, most definitely. And I love, love Beulah to death. When I'd met Van Smith, so a lot of people in Outer Banks still know Van Smith, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd met Van Smith at a hospital conference. I was in a situation in my previous employment that I was ready to, for a new challenge and look, looked around. And he was talking about the Outer Banks. I'd never been to the Outer Banks in my life. Probably one of the few team members we have who had never been to the Outer Banks until we actually interviewed here. And I interviewed here because of the impact I thought that I could make personally on this community. So man was talking about the community and just what a giving community it was. And the community pulled together to do things that were just unbelievable for a community our size. So it really intrigued me. And about a week later, I saw through a hospital email that comes out across the state movers and shakers well van was a mover and shaker because he had (laughs) mentioned he was leaving and going to greenville Mm -hmm. for a senior position and i thought to myself well that's silly you just told me you had a great position and a great community (laughs) in the outer banks so i sent my application in and it was all history you know six months later i was here as the president one of the things i did during all that time obviously was took a look at the market and market data and the age of the hospital system being nine years young. Matter of fact, another trivia answer, I actually interviewed, the first interview was on the day of our ninth anniversary. 
So I actually interviewed on one of the anniversary days, which was kind of cool. Now, again, like you said, 11 years ago now, here in June, I started. (laughs) So I really saw a lot of opportunity for a young hospital to really grow. You know, stuff like ear, nose, and throat services, urological services that we brought to the Outer Banks, the urgent care centers that we've opened, and not sure how we would have managed the last couple of years with both tourist volume and COVID volume without those urgent care centers out there. Cancer services, I, I took a look at the cancer services in the community, which weren't really grown where they are today, obviously. And at, at Mortality, there's a Robert Woods Johnson health status indicator report that comes out every year. If the community doesn't know, out of 100 counties in the state, you know, we've ranked 5th to 11th over the last 10, 11 years. And one of the indicators on that status report is around cancer mortality and screening, mammo screening, prostate screening, lung cancer screening, those type of things. And that's where we were not doing that well as a community. We were diagnosing cancers really late in stage with poor outcomes. And we were not screening women and men enough for cancer services. So I knew that had a real big hole as well that we could work on. So that kind of stuff really excites me. I, I had a uh, leadership meeting a few months after I started. And uh, I use the analogy that we all use a lot, spaghetti on the wall. <laughs> so you know, I love throwing spaghetti on the wall. And <laughs> some of it's going to stick. And uh, some of it's going to fall right off. We're going to go, dang, that didn't work. That's okay. We'll keep moving. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing here is probably 90% is stuck. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing at this community because without the community, there's no way we'd be this successful, obviously. It's also why we started the outreach department really early on to really connect in this community because we needed the community to go with us on this journey. Really couldn't do it alone. So yeah, just the whole excitement of the potential here. As I tell people, please, nobody send me hate emails. You know, (laughs) I don't go to the beach. I hardly ever go to the beach. You know, my wife, my family loves it here, loves this community. But I could do this anywhere in America as long as I knew I could have this kind of impact on a community. That's what drives me. That's my passion. And to think that we've decreased mortality in cancer alone 11 years ago, being above state average in all cancers, including breast cancer mortality in five years, to now decreasing it by over half in breast cancer and now being 6 to 7% below state average, it's just amazing at the lives we're saving and the work that we're doing. I guess take the whole podcast, just keep talking, but I know you may want to ask some questions. I'm going to let you ask a few questions, but a great opportunity. And, you know, why would you leave an organization that you've been with for 20 years to go do nothing or to go do something less? And uh, the ability to lead this organization has just been an honor. And I'm pretty humbled by the whole thing. That's great. So you mentioned the cancer and you mentioned the urgent cares. What other innovations have been most notable for the hospital? I think stroke care is, is really large. 11 years ago, we, we weren't giving the clot-busting medication to help with stroke patients. We didn't have neurologists on site, which you need to read the studies to make sure that you're giving it appropriately. Because if you give the clot-busting medication to individual patients who don't need it, who aren't having a stroke, but other symptoms that are similar, then you, you can really hurt the patient. So we would ship people as quick as we could who might be having a stroke, and Chesapeake or Albemarle, others would decide if they were having a stroke or not. So we worked out a contract with a teleneuro company who does telehealth. People talk about telehealth a lot, and we talked about it tremendously in the last couple of years through COVID. Mm-hmm. But really, we started using telehealth about nine years ago for a program that really makes a difference. And as soon as you come in the hospital with potential stroke signs and symptoms, then the neurologist gets on the computer as well as our ED physicians, and they're all seeing the CT scan immediately and determining by an expert if we should give the clot-busting medication or not. 
and now we're doing it mm-hmm. very routinely, very regularly. I think we all know Diane Denny here in the community, who is a great leader in this community, especially now her recent work with the Alzheimer's Coalition locally, and the impact it made just on her and her life and her quality of life. Just one great example, because that's what we think about when we do these type of enhancements. You know, we think about our patients and our right. community. So yeah, stroke care has just been tremendous over the last uh, number of years. And we just went through our recertification <laughs> for our stroke program. And another item might be dementia-friendly. Yeah, dementia-friendly is uh, pretty cool as well. And again, it's one of those things that came out of this community first. And through the Health of Carolinians work and the Health Department's work and the our, our triannual uh, needs assessment, community health needs assessment. So we were given the challenge pretty quickly by Diane, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. If this hospital, what if it became totally dementia-friendly, the first hospital in the state to do it? And uh, Marsha Bryant, our chief nursing officer, you know, took that up as a challenge, and she did it. And so we did become the first hospital in the state to become dementia-friendly. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, our food service workers understand that dementia patients, if they see all white plate and mashed potatoes and mm. all white chicken, they lose their food and they don't eat. Mm. But if you make it colorful and you put it on colorful plates and you mix and match it somewhat, then they eat better. It also allows your facilities worker when they go in to change a light bulb or to work on an air conditioner, that they understand and get trained on how to treat a patient, how to approach a patient, how to be kinder to have a better patient reaction to those folks who may have some sort of dementia. So we marked that on the door in a unique way with a seahorse. So all of our staff, 100% mm-hmm. are trained. Mm-hmm. And Marsha Bryant's been fortunate enough, and Lisa Magaha as well, our med surge director, to be on panels throughout the state, to work with communities outside of the state, even in the United Kingdom pushing this forward dementia-friendly. It seems like it's something that we all should know. Well, you're in healthcare, mm-hmm. so you should know how to treat a dementia patient. Just not the case whatsoever. Unfortunately, we witnessed firsthand. Mom passed away a couple years ago with frontal temporal lobe dementia. And when I was with her at a rehab hospital after a shoulder break, you could tell pretty quickly that people just didn't understand mm-hmm. how to deal with patients mm-hmm. who were angry, who were cussing, who were, you know, in dementia stages and they just thought well, they're just a mean old person, right? And it's like, no, they have a condition, and we need to know how to handle them. And just by saying a few kind words, by sitting mm-hmm. low with them, not hanging over them, by not touching them until they're okay for you to respond that way, just really means a tremendous difference in their care. But it also means a tremendous difference in their loved ones right. when they see the staff interacting with their loved ones that way in more of a compassionate way versus just kind of as a patient number. I can get on that soapbox for a while because, <laughs> because mom went through it. Uh, the but, beauty but of that was the decision to have 100% of the team uh, trained in it because being in a department other than clinical, I had the opportunity to actually employ it uh-huh. in an airport one time, right. and I never would have done it had I not been trained in it. So you pass it on. It's synergistic, I think. Yeah, and the hospital is really proud of that. The North Carolina Healthcare Association began giving out a uh, innovative award uh, it's called the High Smith Award, and their inaugural year, several years ago, they actually awarded it to our hospital for the dementia friendly movement that we've made. And I think as I told them during the acceptance, it was a real brief acceptance speech. It really just goes to show it doesn't really matter the size of the hospital. It's all about the size of your heart. Right. And that's kind of, I think, how we lead our organization. And it was really cool that businesses here on the Outer Banks, restaurants, et cetera, also became dementia friendly and taught their team how to engage in the same approaches. I thought that was pretty cool. It all started here. It's yeah, really um, it's something to be proud about. Yeah. Other innovative projects. When did the idea 
come to you or the dream about starting a cancer center? Oh, wow. Sometimes it takes a long time for <laughs> dreams to come true. Um, probably four or five years ago, we really started thinking seriously about a comprehensive cancer care center. We had hired our first uh, director of cancer services. It was the first new position I created uh, when I arrived 11 years ago. Again, based on some of the previous things I'd mentioned already in this podcast, but I knew one day we'd grow big enough, hopefully, to need a comprehensive cancer care center. We need to be accredited first, which we've now been nationally accredited mm-hmm. several times over now. One of eight hospitals our size in the nation with such accreditation. Same accreditation, not to pick on anyone, so I'll be across the board, Centera, Norfolk, Vidit Medical Center, same exact standards. Right. And whether you're accredited or not doesn't really matter. It really, because it's the right roadmap to do the best by your patient. Mm-hmm. And that's really what accreditation means. It really gives you the standards you have to uphold to do best by your patients and by your community. So as we began to become accredited and um, said so we really are growing, we have um, chemotherapy at the hospital, hematology in the medical office building. We have a uh, radius therapy center down the road. So we started looking about four years ago, really, for sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened over the first couple of years was our, our linear accelerator, our race therapy center in Nags Head, was aging out and needed to be replaced. And when you replace something like that, it ends up being a six-month process to pull the old one out and put the new one in. You know, the vault that it sits in is bigger than a bank vault and thicker. <laughs> it's eight foot thick all the way around wow. concrete. Huh. So we knew we had to go ahead and put a new uh, LINAC in, the piece of equipment that treats the radiation therapy. So we started a new location for it, hoping one day we could expand it we also did that so the community wouldn't be down for six months and need to travel four or five days a week for radiation therapy services. So we built the new radiation therapy center, closed one down on Friday, opened one up on Monday so the patients weren't inconvenienced, and then started working towards a plan to expand that center. Because really, I mean, we have a great service. We have proof that's a great service. We have proof that we've decreased mortality greatly over the years as mm-hmm. well. But still, for the best care possible for our community, to have all those services in one location and you go, why? Well, the caregivers in hematology, oncology, the caregivers in chemotherapy, the nurse navigators, the social work, case managers, nutritionists, the caregivers in radiation therapy center, they all see the same patients at the end of the day. And there's a lot of communication that goes back and forth. And when you're on three different floors and across the street, some of that communication can be jumbled at times. And that's not a mistake we want to make. So to have everybody in the same building, mm-hmm. have daily conferences on patients who may be getting treated multiple ways in the same day or the same week or at the same time just makes the best sense and, and the best way possible for patients to have the best care possible. It's also nice and convenient for the patients, obviously, because right. they just go into one shop and they don't have to go across the street or back and forth. So that's convenient, but really it's all about the coordination of the care, delivering the best health care to our patients. And it is coming true. It is. It is coming exciting. true. And remind our listeners where that cancer center is going to be. It'll be across from the main hospital campus in Nags Head, the Urgent Care Center in Nags Head. If you haven't noticed by now, our color just went up on the old Applebee's, so you go, that must be hospital because it's the same blue, <laughs> but what is it? That will be our new Urgent Care Center in Nags Head. So we're moving into that building, leasing that from the Rosemar Corporation who leases the mall there, and we're going to be tearing down the Urgent Care Center in Nags Head and adding about 10,500 square feet to Radiation Therapy Center and be a two-story building, and it will indeed have chemotherapy, hematology, oncology, the nurse navigators, areas for nutrition counseling, for 
symptom management clinic and everything that we do now, but just all in one nice location. It's going to be amazing. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yep. Hope to break ground June-ish and have some other great announcements too with groundbreaking. Um, so uh, yeah, we're excited. I think it's shooting to be done by August, September of next year, 23. That's amazing. Stay so tuned. great for the Outer Banks. Mm-hmm. So Ronnie, I know you are humble and I tell people all the time, no disrespect to anybody, that you are the best thing that's ever happened to this hospital. So with that being said, what are your hopes for the future of the Outer Banks? Wow. <laughs> you had a crystal ball or your dreams or... Yeah, I think you know, we've done a fantastic job over the years bringing in services that really a small facility can do safely, effectively, and expertly. That's one of the things I think a lot of times in the community, folks either think, well, you're a small facility, you're kind of a Band-Aid station, mm-hmm. or you should do heart surgery. I mean, that's just what we hear <laughs> in the community. Ronnie, why don't you have a trauma surgeon? Why don't you have a neurosurgeon? You know, why don't you have a heart surgeon? And we'll just never do those type of things because it's just not the right thing to do in a small facility. Really wanted somebody to do, that does 100 cases right. a month when you have your heart surgery, not somebody who does 10. Right. So this time, I think from a standpoint of good community services for uh, this community, we're close to there we need to be. I think we're going to end up some neurology services would be great to work on, but not neurosurgery, for example, that type of thing. <laughs> you know, I think when you ask about the future, for me right now anyway, it's just a moment in time, you know, but it's probably not as much about changing healthcare, growing healthcare, but it's about maintaining what we have. Mm-hmm. We all know where we sit in this community when it comes to our environment right now, when it comes to team member shortages, when it comes to housing shortages when it comes to cost of living in the outer banks. So right now, almost all of our strategic thought is being put in how we maintain what we had to get over the next couple of years. And obviously now locally with gas prices just recently, it doesn't help any as well. <laughs> so I think the future, we're going to see some innovative ways that the community works together in looking at essential housing. Right. We, we have to. I mean, it's so critical. It is the number one critical thing across the board, no matter what service line you're in in the outer banks. That's true. Because negative feelings towards the Outer Banks kind of will affect everything at the end mm. of the day. You're not you know, the first podcast guest to say yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Reading a lot of stuff from folks in the West Coast as well, we're not unique. There's mm-hmm. a lot of small tourist towns in, mm-hmm. in America that are going through the same thing that are, you know, a million dollars for houses at a start. You know, we're <laughs> probably about 500000 or so ourselves, but there's some that are in a tougher situation that we are. A lot of those are unique because they have just one or two towns and they do a lot of things closer together. You know, we're pretty spread out and a lot of coastline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a challenge, but I really hope we pull together as a community and, and figure it out, obviously. Well, if the past is any indication, we're going to do it. We, we are. Will yep. Persevere. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, share it on your social channels. To hear more Outer Banks health history, check out the library at theobh.com slash podcast. This is your host, Denise Schnabel. Stay safe.